This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Kawhi Leonard is going to join the Clippers. Kawhi turns the corner for the win. Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Clip and Roll. I'm your host, Justin Russo, and I am once again joined by my esteemed co-host, the effervescent, the handsome Farbod Esnashari. Farbod, what's going on, brother? How you doing? The all-cap streak is dead, and now we have the new streak of putting something in Portuguese at the start of games. But I don't know if I should do that every game, because you're going to lose one, so I feel like I should only do this at, like the back against the wall scenario. There you go. That's the spirit. You don't want to, you don't want to oversaturate the market. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's funny now. Cause everybody, like everybody just wants to type in all caps. Um, game seven was on Sunday afternoon at Staples center. All the marbles do or die. All the final cutouts. score. All the cutouts, <laughs> all the cutouts, all the people that apparently hate cutouts, including you. I, I don't have an opinion on cutouts. I just don't care. Why do you hate the cutouts so much? I can't, I can't go into that in this podcast. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I just don't have an opinion about cutouts. Um, anyways, game seven, final score, 126, 111. Basically, this game didn't feel like a game seven until game six felt more like a game seven than game seven did. Correct. But we didn't get the game seven feeling of this game seven until like midway through the third quarter. And then like that's when it was like, all right, like now it's a game seven. We're all tied up. Each team has made little mini runs like what's going to happen next. And then it happened. Um, the Clippers hit Dallas with what I believe was a 21 to two run, 24 to two run. Something like that. They went from down five to up uh, 14 or 15 going to the fourth. Uh, they were up 15, 185. So they hit Dallas with this insane run. Um, basically out of nowhere. I don't even know where the hell they pulled this run out of. I don't know. It was uh, a <laughs> that whole game seven was was it was interesting for me because I, I had a scout, you know, for the team keep telling me that they're going to get hot from three. So it kind of gave me confidence going into game seven. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's either now or now. I was telling Tomer, I was like, it's either now or never. Like either they're going to get hot from three now or they're just not going to and they're going to lose. Uh, the thing I didn't expect was Dallas to stay alive because of how many offensive rebounds like Finney Smith and everybody was getting. The fact that the Clippers had one 
rebound total in the first quarter was just like, what is happening? So then I started getting a little bit concerned because I thought the Clippers should have been up by like 20, 15 to 20 in the second quarter. Instead, it was like seven. So my concern was, oh, is Dallas going to finally, you know, get a little hot from some of the guys? Like is, is Luca, who was cold the night before, going to get hot this night? Although Tim Hardaway Jr. was already hot the night before, so he was going to get cold in game seven. So I was trying to figure out, like, is any of that going to happen? And then in the third quarter, in the third quarter, it did a little bit. And then all of a sudden, the Clippers go from like an eight-point lead to a five-point deficit out of, yeah, out so, of nowhere. So with 6.45 to go in the, in the third quarter, the Clippers are trailing 81-76. Yeah. And so at that point, I'm, I'm concerned. Like, I'm actually concerned because I'm like, oh, they, 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 they did their three-point punch. They failed to get any rebounds. And so Dallas stayed within striking distance. And somehow the Clippers just responded with more three-pointers. <laughs> just responded yeah, with a bunch it, of rebounds then, too. It was really strange. Like, Porzingis hits this little pull-up turnaround over Paul George, I believe, to put Dallas up five. There's no timeout. Like, you think a timeout from the Clippers is coming. It doesn't. Morris gets an open wing three, makes it. Okay, now it's a two-point game. And then PG gets fouled on a drive. Um, now it's tied. Kawhi makes a dunk. They're up two. Boban can't get, like, two offensive rebound tip-ins. Marcus makes a three. Well, now the Clippers are up five. And then comes the Dallas timeout. And then Dallas starts to scramble and adjust. And there's like a back and forth period of nothing. And then Kawhi gets to the free throw line and they're up seven. They end up getting to eight. But Kawhi gets an offensive rebound put back layup to push the lead from eight to 11. And then Luke makes a three on the wing or yeah, a three on the wing. And then he hits an, or a three in the corner that he was open for after great ball movement. And then he hits another face up three. And the Clippers closed the third quarter. They were down by five, 81-76. They finished the quarter on a 24-4 run and end up the frame up by 15. And while Dallas did chip away and get it down to seven at one point with like two minutes to go, it, it never felt like Dallas was there after that punch. Like it, it reminded well, me a lot. I definitely felt like they were there when, well, when they were down seven you freak out about everything, but no, I, I know I just expect the worst out of the, <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I, but when it reminded I watch, me, <laughs> go on, go sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was to say when I watch everyone else's teams, I can look at it very objectively and be like, don't worry, you're going to win. Like, unless something bonkers happens, you're going to win. You know, like when I'm watching the Suns versus the Nuggets game one, as soon as Phoenix started going on that run, it's like you can see it objectively and you're like, you, you can tell it's done. Like Phoenix has that in the bag and that the momentum has shifted entirely and there's nothing Denver is really going to do. But whenever I watch the Clipper games, it's always like, yeah, but crazy shit always happens every time. Somehow something, something that defies the laws of what is objective happens. So I expected the worst once they were down seven. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of the game five run by Dallas in the third, where like Dallas makes that run and it's like, all right, the Clippers are out of this. And then they come back, but the Clippers were a lot better than Dallas was down the stretch of that game. Clippers had a lot more spacing, a lot more shooting, a lot more methods in which to score. 
And to be fair, Dallas just stopped making threes because their role guys had just been overperforming like crazy from beyond the arc. I mean, the Clippers end up winning the game. They end up winning comfortably. Um, I mean, it was a it was a seven point game with like two minutes left. I was like, that's pretty legit. It's it was fun, buddy. Buddy, we need to. I need to find a way to like to calm your nerves during games. Yeah, not when you've seen them lose in every type of way for ten years. I, I have. I've seen them lose for like twenty <laughs> from, years <laughs> from this seat, from that exact seat. No, I understand. For 10 years. I under. I'm just saying, like. I don't know. Maybe it's my belief in Ty Lue. Maybe it's my belief in this specific roster construct. Maybe it's my belief in the way this season has unfolded. I don't know. But I, I will say they, I mean, there were numerous times this series, I thought they were down for the count. And they've kind of, especially if they were the team they were last year, because I feel like Correct. the team they were last year would have been down for the count numerous times. The team last year would have gave up down 30 to 11. I don't know if they'd give up down 30-11, but they for sure wouldn't adjust well enough to win. Therein lies the crux of everything. The adjustments that were made by Ty Lue in the Sears. I will get to that in a second. But talk about Dallas's role players and like them missing threes. In the first three games of the series, Luka Doncic shot 46% from three. In the final four games of the series, he shot 36%. In the first three games, Tim Hardaway Jr. shot 65%. Same as Maxie. F- uh, yeah, Maxie was 64, but I'll get to that in a second. Hardaway shot 65%. He made 15 of his 23 threes. That's absurd. He made eight of his next 34 in the final four games, 23.5%. Maxie Kleber shoots seven of 11, 63.5% in the first three games, makes just one of his final nine in the last four games. Of all the Dallas Mavericks players... From the first three games to the final four games, the only player who saw their three-point percentage not decrease, so the only guy whose three-point percentage didn't go down, was Dorian Finney-Smith, who went from 41.7 to 44%. He was the only guy besides Luka at times who seemed like they can make threes. And therein swung the series because Dallas's role guys stopped shooting like they were Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant. And they started shooting like they're probably more or less in line with on an averages basis where everything averages out at the end. It's also why you have to survive too, because imagine if if the Clippers, if the Clippers folded in game three, for instance, like you never even, you'll, you'll never even see the regression. Dallas would just finish the series with guys shooting 60%. And the regression wouldn't come until probably the next series. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the thing is you got to survive. It's basically almost like March Madness, like survive in advance, survive in advance. Like that's what the Clippers did. They they survived this absurd swing in percentages because it also affected the Clippers too. In game six, a game that the Clippers won, in game six, the Clippers were just five of 17 on unguarded three-pointers. In game seven, they were 13 of 26. They just started making them. And part of the reason was because they were left wide open because of, of Dallas's zone. Dallas ran a zone seven or excuse me. Dallas ran a zone 40 times in game seven. The Clippers scored 52 points on them. What's amazing is uh, a lot of the Clippers still didn't even get up to their averages despite winning. Like Batum no. is Batum is at 29% for the playoffs 
which is insane because Batum has been super clutch from three. Paul George is at 30%. But somehow in one game, Marcus Morris went from like 30 to 45% because of how amazing he was in game seven. Well, it's funny because everyone was like poo-pooing on Marcus for a shooting in the series. But what I think people didn't really look at was... He started the series missing his first nine three-point attempts and then made 10 of his next 20 going into game seven. So he had found his shooting stroke. He just needed to keep it going. And boy, did he. Because in game seven, Marcus Morris Sr. just absolutely goes ballistic. He finishes the game with 23 points, five rebounds, two assists. He made seven of his nine three-point attempts. The seven makes in a game seven tied Steph Curry's NBA record for a game seven. So anytime you're with Steph Curry on a stat, that's absolutely insane. Um, So yeah, he ends up finishing. If you just look at what he did the last six games of the series, he finished 17 of 29 from three in the final six games. That's insane. Yeah, the thing that I was really concerned about with him too was like there was a specific moment in game two. I believe it was game two. Yeah where he gets an offensive foul and he just like collapses on the floor and he knows he's losing them the game because he's not oh, shooting Oh, that's when he well. fouls out. That's when yeah. he fouled out. And he, he knows he's not shooting well and he just got this offensive foul and he just like, he just sits on the floor for like 20 seconds or 10 seconds till Kawhi picks him up and I was just like, oh man, like this guy's in his own head at this point now where he like knows he's, he's got to pick it up or they're going to lose. I think he was disappointed in himself on that foul because if you remember right before that, he hit back-to-back threes to bring them back within the game. So it was, it was game like, two, right? When yeah. He, he, yeah, he hits back-to-back threes like with like f- five or four minutes to go in the, in the fourth, and then he gets that foul, and it's like, and he fouls, that's what fouled him out, and I think he was just overall just disappointed in himself at that point. But there were a lot of a lot of moments... Like, you know, even Terrence, right? Like there's, there's a lot of moments where I think last year their inability to capitalize in games five, six, and seven, like you could see they, they just never kept their head up and just like scrambled. It broke them. And there were a lot of moments in this series, you know, moving on from game seven and talking about the whole series. There were a lot of moments in this series where like, it was like, oh, this is, this is the crumble moment like this could be where they don't pick their head back up and every single time they pick their head up and they kept fighting whether it was like being down 19 in game three whether it was being down in the fourth quarter in game six the recovery i mean the way they the lost se- in the game sequence five, of game five yeah yeah the way they lost game five was like jesus well, the game the way they lost game one too I mean, five was worse though, because it was yeah. Like, five five was worse. They had a chance, and it didn't. Five work. five was like a DeAndre Jordan tip in on a Blake Griffin shot that ruins the shot, and you lose the game. Like it was like on that level of oh man. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I literally mentioned that to Shane when we previewed games game seven was how much this series against Dallas reminded me of the series against San Antonio, like how many parallels there were. So it's uh, I mean, there was just so many moments where they could have crumbled and I was, you know, wondering if they would. And each time they kind of proved me wrong and including in game seven, when they're down five in the third, or it's only a seven point game in the, in the fourth, like whenever they look completely lost and puzzled, they figured out a way to stop looking lost and puzzled at some point. Like any good team, 
Hiring the right employees for your front office is just as important as recruiting the best players for the game. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. Only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, shout out, massive shout out to Reggie Jackson. He, his back-to-back threes late in the fourth, really iced the game. And then Marcus hits a corner three to, to literally kill Dallas at that point. Um, the reason I'm shouting out Reggie, once again in a series against the Dallas Mavericks, he leads the team in three-pointers. He did it last year. He does it this year. That switch to Reggie to start game three, that was pivotal. It got them spacing. Everyone was pissed, and it got them the spacing and the shooting they needed. Well, also, Pat just doesn't look like Pat. He can't play in that series. So I think he could play. We'll get into Utah in a minute. I think he could play against Utah, but the thing when facing a coach like Rick Carlisle is your weaknesses he will exploit. So, like, if there's a guy on your team who can't shoot, they won't respect him. And not to say Beverly can't shoot, but he's not to the same level of caliber of shooter as Reggie Jackson is. So, like, you're going to respect Reggie more than you're going to respect Pat. Well, and Pat's we saw also that just w- more hesitant, too. You could see it in game, what was it, like three? Like, when he airballed that three, I mean, he looks so hesitant to shoot it. And then Reggie just does not care. And you need that. You need a guy who, who who has no like filter. I mean, they couldn't even play Rondo in the second half of Game 7 because Dallas wouldn't respect him as a shooter, nor should they. It's, it's funny because I, I don't know what Tomer told you, but like, remember when they got to Game 7 and they were down 7 and you know Reggie's in over Terrence and Luke. I think both he and I were like, I don't know why you're closing with Reggie over Terrence or Luke and then oh down the stretch of game seven yeah and then we, yeah. we were both and then like once it got to seven he he started looking at me like oh shit and then Reggie hits like two threes or whatever it was one or two yeah, threes yeah it's two and then we were just like all right my bad <laughs> I mean d- listen you cannot you absolutely cannot doubt big government have I taught you nothing Though defensively, sometimes he's just running around. Listen, hey, hey, hey. Big government's not here for the defense, okay? They're here for the offensive. He's here to give money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Big big Govy's out here making making stuff happen on the offensive end. You don't need to stop things. He's not here to to help you save your money. He's here to give you money. That's right. That's the bailout. That is the bailout. Um... But there's a lot to cover from this game seven. Um, 
Terrence Mann and Luke Kennard. Game seven heroes? Question mark. And it was wild. You got a Reggie chant. You got a loud Reggie chant multiple times. And then when Luke, I, I remember in my section where I was in the 114, when Luke was going for a three, like the whole crowd would stand up and go, Luke. So they were, I mean, if it was a full crowd, you, I think you would have heard it a lot more on TV. Terrence was fantastic. Luke was fantastic. The interesting thing with Luke is we've heard, especially after game seven, Ty talk about like realizing that Luke was okay enough on the defensive end to play him at the, like he saw at the end of game six, that Luke was okay enough on the defensive end to give him minutes for game seven. He got those minutes. He was still good enough on the, on the defensive end and produced wildly on the offensive. I mean, he was better defensively than what I remembered him being in the regular season, though, too. So his shows and recovery against Luka were really good. It was really good at the end of game six, because I remember tweeting about it like randomly the night after game six, like, wow, his like shows and recovers were actually good. And then he got the minutes for game seven because Ty said after game six, he's going to play in game seven. Game seven comes around. Uh, Kennard starts going out there, show and recover, show and recover, gets back, does a solid job on one possession of denying Brunson or Burke, I, one of the two, an easy layup. And he's making his wide open threes. And if he's making his wide open threes, you have to play that man because they have to respect him as a shooter. And you need that spacing against the zone that Dallas was using. I mean, it's uh, I'm just very happy for them to get the the playing time in game seven. Didn't it remind you a little bit of that Atlanta game where like the youngster, like those two came in. It was like, we're going to wreck shit and make it happen. It, like, it, come on, what, fellas, let's get to the end. What was funny is I, uh, in game five, I, I was sitting next to like a, a very high level reporter because I don't want to, I don't want to be no snitch, but I was sitting next to a very high level reporter and he, he's like looking at me. He's like, what's the deal with Luke Kennard? He's like, they, they get this guy and they pay him all this money. Don't, they don't even play him. That same reporter was in Game Seven. I, I, I didn't get to sit next to him in Game Seven. Like, I really wanted to see his reaction to Luke hitting all those shots. Yeah, I mean, people made jokes like, "Oh, they gave this guy sixty-four million. He can't even play in the postseason." Well, he might have saved their season in Game Seven. Um, yeah, and we've by the way, we've got all this time far, but we got in twenty minutes, just over twenty minutes, and we haven't even talked about the two stars at all. The, the two what? Because oh, the stars. Yeah, you know why? Because role players win game sevens. The stars will help you a ton, but the role players came up huge in game seven. Uh, Nick Batum was great in game seven. 11 points, seven rebounds, five assists, two steals, and a block. Man played 42 minutes, man. Like, that's insane. Um, but let's talk about him. We're going to start with Paul George. 22 points, 10 assists, three steals. He only shoots five of 15. However... He carries them through a very crucial second quarter where he scores 13 points and makes all four of his shots. And then in the fourth, he does a good job of getting through the teeth of the defense to get to the free throw line a couple times. He has a nice assist. He was really like, if you just looked at his shooting line for game seven, you would not think he was good. He was really good. He's kind of a different player in these playoffs. He, uh, He's driving almost, more. Yeah, he almost never got to the line in the regular season. He shot a bunch of threes and they went in. And then now he's like he's like the guy that's doing all the dirty work, getting rebounds, getting to the line, but he can't sh he can't shoot worth a lick right now. But he seems to figure out a way to make up for it. I also think the Dallas series is weird for him because 
the way that Dallas plays defense, there isn't a lot of like pure catch and shoots or like the, the, the type of shots that he likes to generate. You know what I mean? So yeah, like they, I mean, they, he, they weren't able, they're not able to run pin downs for him because Dallas is in a zone. It just, but still it just doesn't seem to matter whether he's wide open or not. He'll just, he just isn't in a groove at all, but he still makes up for it. He, he was, he was really good in the series, really good in the series. Cause if you go back and look at what he did, he shot 73% inside eight feet, which is unreal. He shot 47 and a half percent in the mid range. That is just great. He only shot 30 and a half percent from three, but he delivered everywhere else as a passer, as a rebounder. He had what 13 rebounds in game six, you know, like this, this guy is hustling, man. And I think people need to give him respect for that. It's uh I mean, he's playing whole court. He's playing whole halves. Like, I think it, it's just at the end of the day, everybody just likes crapping on him because they want the engagement on Twitter from Laker fans. That's it. That's all anybody's MO is, is how do I steal the engagement from Laker fans on Twitter and get a bunch of likes and retweets? So it's it's a low hanging fruit. It's a, I didn't watch the game and I'm just looking at the box score. I mean, pretty much. Um, do you want to talk about him? Do you want to talk about Kawhi? I think we need to talk about Kawhi. Sure. I he mean, was, he's he's cool. I mean, he's all right, I guess. I mean, he, he's just out there doing things. Kawhi Leonard, game seven, 42 minutes. 28 points, 10 rebounds, nine assists, four steals, one block, no turnovers, makes 10 of his 15 shots, all seven of his free throws. As an aside, the Clippers made all 24 of their free throws. So when the team needed it the most... The best three-point shooting team and the best free-throw shooting team in the NBA came through on both fronts, which is just incredible to see in a Game 7. But Kawhi Leonard goes for 28, 10, 9, and four steals and a block, makes 10 of his 15 shots. Um, For the series, if you want to get into the series stats, he averaged 32 points, eight rebounds, four and a half assists, two steals and a block on 72.3% true shooting. This is a monster series. He guarded Luka Doncic more than anyone else, and Luka was 16 of 38, which is 42%, and scored only 39 points. This man was a monster. And because of him, because of his ability to start out either guarding Porzingis or Doncic, if he started guarding Porzingis, what would happen is when Dallas would bring Porzingis on a screen for Luka, they would switch it. And that blew up every single screen action. So it's partially why Porzingis kind of didn't get off yet in Dallas's own words they used him as basically um oh god I just lost the word they used him as a decoy he was just a decoy on offense which is absurd from a from a max level guy from a 30 million dollar um, guy yeah this is from Ramona Shelburne's article according to second spectrum tracking the Mavericks averaged 1.18 points per possession during the regular season when Porzingis set a, a ball screen for Doncic which made them the most efficient duo in the league to run at least 300 picks. And because of Kawhi Leonard, because of their ability to switch everything, they completely blew that up. They couldn't run it anymore. That's absurd, man. It's, uh, you know, it felt like with Kawhi, like he knew he messed up at the end of game five and he just was like, now I have to make sure we win. Yeah, he had a bad game. I mean, it wasn't just a bad game. it It was the finish of the game. It was the, it was the bad three. Because you could have a bad game, and if you hit that shot, then nobody cares. But it was to have a bad game and airball the three the way he did. And it just seemed like he just decided, I'm going to make sure we don't lose again after this. He 
he's a machine. That's the only thing I can keep thinking. Like, he's a machine. He's the only player in NBA history for their postseason career, minimum 100 games. The only guy at that threshold to average at least 15 points per game with 50% shooting from the field and 40% from three. Farbod, he's averaging 21 a game in his career in the postseason, and he's doing this. I, I would like to see... I just, I really would like to see him not go against Luca in the playoffs one time because it just, it feels like it just hurts both of them. Because then instead of everyone being like, oh my God, Kawhi is the best playoff performer or Luca is the best, like everybody's competing them against each other. And I just want to see both of them get their own thing. Before we get into the Utah series, I do want to mention this about Luca. That dude is legit. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that he really might be the best show in the NBA. I put him above Steph. I, I mean, really I, think he is. I think legit's kind of an understatement. I feel like there are superstars, you know, there's like Kawhi, um, Jokic, you know, this kind of the superstars. But I think like Luka feels like once in a generation good, like LeBron, Kobe level. Larry good. Bird. Like he feels that good where you're not going to get another Luka. Like it's he controls everything. And he has to do so much work. And it doesn't matter how hard the shot is. He figures out a way to get it off. And like, you know, he played bad in the fourth quarters or whatever. But like, he did so well for the first halves where like, they still had a shot to win. He kept them in so many games. It's like, if he just had another all-star with him, like, it's a whole different, like, that's a real problem. If he had another all-star with him, that'd be terrifying. Like another 20-point-a-game guy. He put up 46 points, 14 assists, 7 rebounds in a game 7 on 17 of 30. 45 minutes. And I understand... the youngest player in history to do so, actually. I understand that he ran out of steam in the fourth quarters, and I kind of think that's what the Clippers were banking on, is like, this guy's going to get tired as the game wears on. And and it 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 was really a thing that happened all series long, without fail. Even in games 1 and 2, even in game uh, 5... They only he in game, wore down. I think only in game three he kind of didn't wear down when he hit all those threes at the end. But like, but it was it was one of those things where like if he had another all star with him that could actually create it when he wears down on those fourth quarters, like that other guy could just pick up the slack. But because they, he didn't they need have to get that. him. So you know what's funny is I was actually talking with someone about this today. If he had the Atlanta roster about around him. I think Dallas could win the West. Like if you put him in Trey Young's spot with with if you put him next to like Bogdanovich, Gallinari, Lou Williams, Capella, John Collins. Come on, man. I mean, to be honest, like I don't mind Dallas's roster. I just think like Porzing. I just think the it's the Porzingis spot that needs to change. I, I like Tim Hardaway Jr. I like Finney Smith. I like Brunson. They need a center. Yeah, I, I, I mean, if not a center, just they just need another solid, like legitimately solid 20-point-a-game guy that can raise the ceiling to higher than 20 points a game. The weirdest thing to me for Dallas in this series is they just didn't play Dwight Powell enough, and I don't know why. Like, he was actually good and was really good in that Game 5 win for them, remember? Yeah. And they didn't play him really after. It made no sense. He only played 52 minutes in the entire series and like half of those minutes were in game five. And if you go back and look like Willie Cauley Stein played 11 more minutes than him. 
if you look at the like the the breakdowns of like uh D- Dwight Powell on the floor with Luka Doncic, Dallas won those minutes by 16 points and they were only 32 minutes. In the 249 minutes that Luka played without Dwight Powell, the Clippers outscored the Mavericks by 9. Like and it made no sense either because Luka played 28% of his minutes in the regular season alongside Dwight Powell. It was 11% in this series. I don't understand what Rick Carlisle did. I think Ty Luke coached laps around him. He basically at times pl- was able to play Jalen Brunson off the floor, and Jalen Brunson's good. He was able to play uh, – like he used Boban against them because I think it took Dallas out of their offensive rhythms in game six and seven. Like it, it was insane. I do think Boban did pretty well in Game Seven, though. I mean, he I think kinda, Boban was fine. Him and Finney Smith pretty much kept them alive. I I would agree, but I also think the problem was it took Dallas out of their rhythm because they they couldn't stop the Clippers from getting to the paint, and so they kept getting open threes. So it's like, why are you, they're only playing a zone because they can't have Boban defend on the perimeter. Well, at that point, you're just giving up open threes and then you have to win the math game the other way. And they can't and they couldn't do it. They lost three pointers by 30, but they won points in the paint by 30. But they weren't stopping the Clippers from getting to the paint either. It, I mean, it was it just seemed like a risky gamble of, oh, these guys have been cold. Let's let's run the game. Let's run the gambit again. Let's run. Let's spin the roulette wheel again. And then it didn't work. And, and then they lost. But that's insane when you're giving people wide open threes. Like if you keep giving people wide open threes at that rate that they did in game seven, you have to assume they're going to make them. I mean, but they didn't the whole series. So I guess that's, I what, mean, they, that's what they spun their wheel on. Ty Luke, remember Ty kept smashing the table pre and post game. Like this has to be the night that we're going to have a great shooting night. Like kind of like it's going to come and then it came when you needed it. Yeah, I think maybe he was banking that they might have been in their own heads too much and weren't going to like it wasn't coming. Uh, but it ended up coming. Yeah, it really did. Um, all right, let's overall, talk Utah. O- overall, though, I don't want to face Luka Doncic again. That's a thing I don't want to happen anymore. Had enough Luka. If, yeah, if they put a legit... You know why? And this is why postseason stuff... I, I really enjoyed this series. This series was a blast. Like, from a pure basketball standpoint, I love this series. From like a like a rooting interest, the one reason I don't like postseason basketball is you start to not like the other team or other players on the other team. I didn't get that way in the series, but I I know I've seen that online, and I hate that because it shouldn't be that way. You should appreciate players like superstar, super duper star level talent players on other teams. It was interesting that it was much different than last year. Facing Dallas last year, the Clippers were just, I mean, they were just kind of dicks and they just kept bullying everybody and, you know, they piss off Luca all the time, piss off Porzingis, get him yeah, ejected, there was none of that. get him checks. Like, yeah, there was none of that this time. It almost reminded me of when they faced the Spurs in 2015 and it was just like basketball. There was yeah. no cheap shots. There was no anything. So it's a much different series. It was funny because PG gets flagrant fouled by Tim Hardaway Jr. at the end of the at the end of game seven, which, by the way, I do want to say that was not intentional by Tim Hardaway. It was, as Jeff Van Gundy said on the on the ABC broadcast when I rewatched it today, that it was like an unintentional flagrant foul. Like he went to grab him to stop him from dunking and it was just an awkward thing. And but it was interesting because PG gets up and just like starts looking around. And I, I like I think last year it would have been like anger. 
And then like at the, like after it happened, you like when PG came off the floor to get subbed out with like 35 seconds to go, he and Tim Hardaway Jr. like dapped each other up. Like, hey, man, like no worries. Like, hey, it's cool. And like that wouldn't have happened last year. Last year was Crimea River. Yeah. There was wild stuff. I did. Like, <laughs> what a change, man. Yeah, much. I mean, I think if they go against Phoenix, it's going to be like that, though. I think if they go against Phoenix, it's not going to be that nice. Because Phoenix also likes to piss everybody off, too. I mean, Denver likes to do that, too, with uh, Campazzo. Uh, not, little... not like Phoenix, though. Jay Crowder's dancing on the court. Uh, CP3's mocking, you know, drumming. I mean, they, they like to talk smack. See, for that series, I think it would just be Booker. Uh, it's going to be CP3 for sure. I mean, CP3 and Booker for sure. CP3 and, if Rondo's out there. <laughs> I mean, Rondo doesn't even doesn't have to be out there. He just has to be on the court. He'll make sh- I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, I bet a lot of money. But uh, on, to, on to Utah, though. On to Utah. Um, this is a really interesting series. Um, this really, like Utah was the best team in the NBA this season for a reason. Great half-court offense, great half-court defense. They hunted threes better than any team in the league. I believe about half their shots are threes. Um, And they're rhythm threes. Like, these aren't – they're not all like, oh, we're just heaving threes. Like, no. Like, they're getting high, high, high quality looks. Um, Clippers are going to have their work cut out for them. I'm very interested to see if if they try the small ball. Ty on Monday, as he talked in the – I guess the wait, the lobby, the waiting room of a hotel in Salt Lake City um, talked how they are going to go to small ball. Like it is going to happen. I'm curious to see if they start with it. I'm curious to see if Zoo gets a starting spot back just to start and see what happens in the series, um, especially because in game one, they might try to find a little bit of rest for people. So like you're not going to play Nick Batum 40 minutes in game one. Maybe if you play Zoo 20 minutes, you're able to save Nick Nick's legs as the series go on. You know what I mean? I think they're going to start Zoo. I think they are. I'm curious to see if... Uh, no, and I think they're going to start Pat. That was what I was going to say. I'm curious to see if they start Pat. More confident in them starting Zoo than starting Pat, but I think they're going to start both. I think they start Zoo. They might not start Pat. Because Pat does pretty decent on Donovan Mitchell. He does... I this reminds me um a little bit of the year I don't know if you remember this Cleveland goes to the finals with Ty as the coach and the previous finals that they had lost Mozgov T- Timofey Mozgov was like really good in that final series you remember that Yeah The next time they played Golden State Mozgov like barely played he played 25 minutes in the entire series. They really went to small ball. They stretched everything out. They used like the switching style of defense. Um, I'm really curious to see if like that's a similar thing. Now, I understand Mozgov and Beverly are different, so this will probably apply more to Zoo. But it really makes me wonder, like, Matthew Dellavedova only played 46 minutes in, that, in those finals because Golden State didn't respect him as a shooter. And obviously Beverly's a better shooter than Della Vadova, but like it's that level of guy where if the team isn't respecting you, you can't play him. 
So I'm curious to see what Ty does in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still think they're going to go to everyone, but the Utah, the, the the big question mark to everything to me is if Mike Conley is playing because he's questionable. Yeah, and he's got the same hamstring injury as before. And I asked one of the top Utah reporters what they think, and they think it's a toss-up on whether or not he plays, but they don't think he'll be able to play a full seven-game series. From the standpoint of Mike Conley always kills the Clippers. Mike Conley is always in control. He's the one guy on Memphis. I know this sounds crazy. He's the one guy on Memphis who actually scares me because he's always in control and he knows what he's doing. You say Memphis or Utah? Utah. I'm, did I say Memphis? Yeah, I was confused. Was well, I mean, he is on. He was on Memphis. I guess is kind of why I said Memphis. So my bad. On he's the one guy in Utah who kind of scares me from the standpoint of nothing rattles him, and he's seen everything. So he'll keep everyone in line and like even keel, which is we've come to learn is the best word that the Clippers have is even keel. So. But that's why Conley is a crucial element to the series. Unless we forget, Sergi Bach is injured. He did not make the trip with the Clippers to Salt Lake City for games one and two. There's no word on if he's going to play in the series. And that's a very important guy to be missing in this series when Utah is going to play two traditional bigs. They're going to play Gobert. And when Gobert's not on the floor, it's Derek Favors. Derek Favors usually does a pretty good job against the Clippers, I feel like. Hammers them. Like all the time. All Hammers them. And that's the problem. Two of the biggest Clipper killers are on that Utah on that Utah side: Mike Conley and Derek Favors. I, d- I definitely. I mean, it's interesting because uh, I don't think anyone on their on the Jazz is a better player than Kawhi or could give him a run for his money like Luca can. But the team overall is way better, uh, and I think the margin for error is going to be the same as it was against the Mavs. Like you, one slip, like. Even though the Mavs weren't a better team than the Jazz, the Mavs are like, you give them one offensive rebound, they hit a three. You give them one little hiccup, they scored every time. I think it's going to be the same level of margin of error with the Jazz. Which is why I'm very interested to see how much small ball he uses. Because if you remember the... Now, this is a long time. A lot has changed since then. But remember the last game against Utah when each team was pretty much healthy? And yeah. it was in the regular season. They played Utah like two days before and Utah beat them, but the Clippers had a bunch of people resting. And then they play this game against Utah. The Clippers win 116-112. And I remember watching that game. And maybe that's why Ty is going to go with small ball because he saw like down the stretch of that game, they went small and the Clippers got whatever shot they wanted because they were drawing Rudy Gobert out of the paint every time. Yeah, but they also they had Pat play really, really well that game too, I remember. Well, yeah, and they put him in the corner and he hit two big corner threes. All because Rudy didn't want to leave the paint. It's a, it's a series where you kind of wish you had a guard that could draw Rudy out and bring him out all the time as much as possible. So Utah plays drop coverage. The Clippers do as well with Zoo, but... Jazz predominantly are a drop coverage team in pick and rolls. So Gobert will sag back when the screen happens. I almost wonder if the reason you play small is to bring Rudy up to the level of the screen and just go by him or back cut it with other action. Or if you start with Zoo 
Do you run PG as the ball handler on that action to just free him up for easy threes like that he can step into as a ball handler? So like he'll get the screen from Zoo, Gobert sag down, boom, PG has a pull up three. There's a lot of machinations that can happen, but Gobert's going to hurt them. Either like Gobert's good, like really good. He's a freak defensive player. He's the best defensive player probably in the NBA right now. He's going to win another defensive player of the year. There's only two guys I think Gobert's scared of, and that's Jokic and Steph Curry. Those are the two that make him look bad all the time. I mean, and Dame. Dame does it too. Dame does too. And then outside of that, I think Gobert is fine. I think he can handle everybody else. I mean, that's why I think PG's going to be an interesting person to watch, especially running pick and rolls, because if they can do this, like if they do that and, and Gobert's in drop, then I think PG should have the green light to just hoist up. Another thing that is actually interesting, going back to Luke Kennard for a second, Luke was very comfortable pulling up out of screen action with threes. I wonder if that might be something they try. I also do think... Uh... They're due, like, PG and Batum are very, 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 very due for some big shooting nights, especially PG, especially since they just went through seven games of shooting under their averages. I, I feel like PG, like, it, it, I, I mean, this is way too pre- predictive. Uh, it kind of reminds me of when they beat the Warriors in seven, and then the next game against OKC in game one, all of a sudden the Clippers hit, like, 15 threes and one by 20. Like, I feel like that's the level of do PG should be at at this point, unless it's all in his head and he can't just get over it. I mean, I think he's going to be fine. I'm not really worried about him from that point of view. The other thing is, if they go small and space him out, they might just keep attacking the paint and try to get Gobert in foul trouble. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, it's a... it's like it's an, it's a series where I'm like I'm not as comfortable with this as I was with if we were going against Phoenix. Um, it's hard. To, it's really hard to tell how it's going to go. Uh, I I don't know. I just know whatever lineup we get on game one, we probably won't get in game five. That's the one thing I'm pretty certain of. I mean, probably. Uh, it's also a reminder, the last two times the Clippers won a Game 7 at home, so 2014 and 2015, they ended up winning Game 1 on the road of the next series. They win 122-105 against OKC in 2014, and they win 117-101 on the road against Houston in Game 1 in 2015. That, that game was, was actually shocking. without Chris Paul. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, was without shocking. Chris Paul. Because Austin Rivers comes in and has 17, Jamal goes for 20. That That was insane. Yeah, I remember I was at Fuddruckers watching that game. Rest in peace, Fuddruckers. There's no more in SoCal. They were da- by the way, the Clippers were down at the half in that game, and they and they won the second half by 20. And I remember I was watching with my friend, and he said, chill out, it's only game one. And then when we went up 3-1, he was like, okay, you're good to freak out now. And then they lost. <laughs> Great. Thank you for that. Thank you for putting that aura <laughs> out there. Appreciate that. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> you know what I found interesting? That Ty talked about after Game 7. Did you say that there? you found it interesting that there was a Mayweather fight after every Game 7 win? Well, that after well, wait, was there a Mayweather fight in 2014? I know there was 2015. There was a, in both, yeah. Floyd, you got to keep fighting for us, baby. That's yeah, all, just, that's all I know that, at this point. Do that every time. <laughs> yeah, p- please, do it. What are you doing uh, on fight Tuesday Lo- night? Just fight Logan Paul's kids. Do that. <laughs> like in, in 10 years, fight Logan Paul's kids. Can you fight Jake Paul uh, Tuesday night? 
Like, can you do that? Like, just keep scheduling them, baby. Uh, we need we need all the good juju. Um, here's the thing. What was I gonna say? I I don't know where I was going with this now. Oh, your prediction? Um, no, I I I didn't make a prediction for last series. I'm not gonna do a prediction for this series. Okay, come good. on. We don't want that come juju. On. No, no, no. Is that our thing now? Bad juju. <laughs> mm, yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm I'm very superstitious. Come playoff time, I will. I'm not even. I'm not even messing with you. Like game five, I wore all of. The, so I was in a button up and jeans. I wore all of the clothes I wore at home on games three and four. So I had a tank top, shorts, and my Batman shorts underneath every <laughs> underneath everything I was wearing. Okay, I you wore, you I, might need an intervention. I wore, I wore like five different layers of clothing in game five. And then when they lost, I was like, fucking Batman shorts didn't even work. You, you, you might need an intervention, my man. I'm so you really might need an intervention. Well, the thing was, I wore those shorts game seven spurs. That's why. All right, then I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. So I, I, I get superstitious during the playoffs, but it's also just for like, it's just for to bring everybody's morale up too, you know? Yeah, so you can break their hearts. I'm with you. I'm with you. Here's an interesting thing. The last time Ty Lue won a game seven was against the Indiana Pacers in a 4-5 matchup. They then went to Toronto to play the one seed, beat Toronto in overtime, 113-112. The starting lineup that night for Cleveland was George Hill, J.R. Smith, Kyle Korver, LeBron James, and Kevin Love. Does that not seem like a small ball lineup to you? Yeah, it's a spread the floor lineup. I really have seen Ty just going back to his, like, I know what works in the postseason mentality of space the floor, play their good players who can't defend off of it, and we'll be fine. Like, he he played good offensive players off the floor in that Dallas series. I've never, like, it was absurd. Jalen Brunson should, like, should have been out there a lot more for Dallas, and he couldn't. So it makes me wonder, in this Utah series, hypothetically, is he going to be able to play Jordan Clarkson off the floor? I don't know. If he's, no, he's too important. He's not gonna, they're not going to play Jordan Clarkson off the floor. I, I think he's too important, but if they attack it, if they get Kawhi get matched up against him on switches and actions in the mid post, and they have to send help, and the Clippers start making threes off of a swing... I don't know how you can keep playing him, even for his offense. It's just it, it depends on the stubbornness too. Like again, if you're if you're Doc Rivers, you you would never play you you would never not play Trez or Lou. They there was there was no never. playing Trez Lou Trez or Lou off never. the floor. So I mean, I can't really I I don't think I watched the Jazz enough to give you that accurate statement of like whether they'd be willing to adjust in that regard and play somebody that important off the floor like Tyloo's adjustments in that last series were insane Evita mm-hmm. Zubats was their starting center and he, he did two not starters sp- out and they didn't even play yeah to start game three they took out Patrick Beverly put in Reggie Jackson to start like midway through game three they take out Evita Zubats and start Nicholas Batum for the second half and they stuck with that and then Pat just wouldn't play and then Rondo started getting benched in the second half and then Zubats would get like three minutes if that 
And then Terrence Mann and Luke Kennard started playing. I, I do want to say one thing as a random aside going back to that series. Boban got the crap beaten out of him, and he got no fouls called. Like, that dude was getting beat up in the post, and he was ready to fight the referees. Because when I saw him in Game 5, like, he was ready to murder someone. They beat the hell out of him, bro. <laughs> they really beat the hell out of Boban. I sent him a text, actually, after, after Game 7. The other guy who got the crap beat out of him was Porzingis. Not as much as Boban, though. Like, Not as he, much as Boban, but they, they were very physical with him. Hey, you know what? But I don't really know that guy, so I don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know Oh, him. man. Um, look, I don't know how Clippers Utah is going to go. Um, I do think the Clippers need to win one of the first two games. Yeah, 100%. But uh, Yeah, because then you have to win four or five again. And this time you have to go on the road for two of them. So very unfortunate for the Clippers, by the way, the game four is scheduled on June 14th and June 15th is the day that you could have full capacity. So they basically only get to have one full arena and that's if they get to game six. I mean, look, I'm not going to cry over spilt milk. No, I mean, for the team, like, although I don't know how much home court matters, but it's just unfortunate for them that they don't get that full crowd to kind of get them even more amped. Uh, yeah, uh, the arena was really good. The crowd was really good for game seven. I described it pregame as like nervous, like nervous confidence. Um, and look, man, this team pulled it out. They were down 2-0, had to go on the road. Game three on the road, they're down 30 to 11 in the, in the first quarter. They pull it out. They win game four. They lose game five in a heartbreaker. They win game six on the road as they absolutely need it. And they come home and they win game seven. This team has a lot of heart. And win or lose rest of the way. I've had a blast. This I've had a blast. This team is just. They're more resilient than pretty much any other Clipper team I've seen. I don't, I don't know about that. that the the 2019 team was pretty resilient, man. Oh, the one that went up to Golden State and stole game two down 31? Yeah, that, that team was pretty resilient. <laughs> they had I mean, a they lot were of really resilient. But this team, when you factor in falling down 2-0, being down by 19 on the road in game three, and you have to win that game. Even the 2011 one, you know, the 27-point comeback against the Grizzlies, and they have to win game seven on the road against the Grizzlies. Okay, but still... So this is one of the most resilient Clipper teams we've okay. ever seen. I'm, I'm okay with that. All right. I, I, I will say, though, I, I can, all I can hope, and it feels accurate to say, but I hope is that the Dallas series prepared them for the Utah series because they had to sharpen up real quick because of Dallas. And I think Dallas shot at a percentage that, they, that, that people think Utah was going to shoot at. And Dallas shot at that level. So, I mean... I don't know how well Utah is going to shoot, but there's, I mean, there's, I can't imagine there's a way they shoot better than 50% for the first three games of the series. But if, you if would they think do, so, but <laughs> if they do, the Clippers have at least seen that. That's true. They shouldn't get rattled by it, I guess, would be the thing. Yeah. But Utah's a different beast because their ball movement, their man movement, it's different. It's different than Dallas. So, but look. Game seven was amazing. That series was amazing. We're on to the next series. 
you know, um, now they left Luka Doncic behind. Now it's Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert, Bojan Bogdanovic, really good players. There's more than just one central engine. This is a very, very, very good team that they're going to have to beat. So we'll see what happens. Farbod, you got anything else for the good people? I watched A Quiet Place 2. It was not as stressful as a Clipper playoff game. So I think you're all prepared to watch any horror movie you've ever seen because it won't be as stressful. Okay. I need to go. I, I bought Cruella and I need to watch that. I have no time to watch it, but I need to find a way to watch it. So everyone stay safe. Wear your mask, social distance. We'll see you all, I guess, in a couple days. We might be back to talk about game one. Maybe we'll wait till game two. I don't know. We'll see. But everyone take it easy. Stay safe. And we'll talk to you later. Go Clippers. <laughs>